Welcome to um, episode 14 of Strange Sound. I'm Joe. Glad to have you back. Glad to be back. This uh, this is an episode that, uh, I don't know, it took me a while to get my head together enough to record it um, during these strange times we're living in. And I want to start by just saying I hope everyone's okay out there. I know everyone isn't okay, but I hope everyone is everyone that's listening to this is doing okay. And that if you are out on the front lines in so many of these direct actions that are happening now, that you're taking care and watching out and not getting your head cracked open by the police. Um and you know, just being safe, uh social distancing to the extent possible. These are difficult days. Um, no question. Um, the George Floyd murder was heinous. Uh, the Ahmed um, Arbery murder was heinous. The um, All of the other recent incidents, just as heinous as they've always been since way back to Amadou Diallo back in the 1990s, uh, 1999, I believe that was. And Patrick Dorsmond and... I could name more, but uh, we've been through all that. Um, just disgusting. So we have the twin crises of COVID-19, the resulting um, economic downturn, and also the George Floyd uh, response to George Floyd and other recent incidents that are taking the form of really large mass movement. Uh, the reason why I say it took me a while to actually start recording this episode is because I haven't been involved in any of the activities myself. I haven't been out on the front lines. I haven't been out there marching with people. Um, I live with someone who's immunocompromised and has um, a lot of underlying conditions. I myself spent some time in the hospital recently, as I mentioned on previous episodes, um, but I'm not, it's not so much for my own health. Uh, I think I, I'm in a relatively low risk group personally, but my wife, um, I, I really cannot bring it back to her. So I, though I'm not typically involved in that many direct actions, um, on a local level, uh, these, uh, recent marches have been of such a magnitude and given the context of everyone being out of work and uh people being you know faced with a lot of time on their hands and the weather being nice you know um there's every incentive to go out there and make your voice heard in a way that i think in a way that a lot of people wouldn't have felt like they had the space or the ability to do um and it's not just a question of feeling is just a question of constraint, right? You can't, 
you can't leave your job in the middle of the day and uh, just say, okay, well, I'm going to go out and protest and uh, see you later, boss. You don't mind, do you? Um, so that would limit people, tend to limit people. When you don't have a boss, you don't you don't have that limit. So uh, a lot of people are getting out there. Um, I will say that living in upstate New York, in a small city in upstate New York, we've seen a remarkable number of protesters um, in this city. Um, and it's the city of Utica. I live uh, around the city of Utica. Um, I actually, technically, I live in the city of Utica, more or less on the outskirts. Um, but just as a matter of uh, perspective, back in 2003, in the run-up to the Iraq War, um, when there were um, protests um, all over not only all over the country, but all over the world, huge protests. Here, I thought we were doing really well when we had about 150 to 200 people lined up on the main street in downtown Utica, um, protesting the war and people honking their horns and all that. And that seemed like a really successful protest for around here. And I'm talking about, I'm talking from the perspectives of someone who, you know, during the 1980s, when, when I would, um, go to demonstrations with people um, protesting the wars in Central America and our support for despotic regimes and our support for the Contras and that sort of thing, there would literally be about a dozen people, maybe less, sometimes five or six, and they were always the same folks, right? And you'd be standing out there with a couple of signs and people would razz you and you know people would harass you and that sort of thing. Mostly people wouldn't notice um, what was going on. And, uh, it was, it was difficult, but I mean, in 2003, in 2003, we thought it was a tremendous success that we would have hundreds of people or at least 150 to 200 people standing out on the street protesting. Last week in Utica, New York, we had over a thousand people marching um, against police violence in response to the George Floyd murder. Uh, this is a truly remarkable sized demonstration for a city like Utica, which is a very small city. Um, it, it's just remarkable. And in surrounding towns, Suburban towns like Clinton, New York, and New Hartford, New York, which is a white bread, you know, suburb of Utica where I grew up and where Claudia Tenney grew up. <laughs> Claudia Tenney, our former congresswoman, um, who is extreme right wing. And New Hartford is an extremely, always was uh, extremely sort of Republican town. There were about 150 people protesting in New Hartford, in Clinton, New York, which admittedly is a college town. There's a Hamilton College there. Um, but still, 150 people in Clinton. I can remember um, going to anti-war demonstrations in the village of Clinton. And again, it was like, it, 
in the run-up to the Iraq War, it was a significant number of people, but not so many that you, you know, were overwhelmed. <laughs> uh, this was like 150 people for a very small town. 150 people in these kind of surrounding suburban towns and over a 1,000 people in Utica, New York. That's remarkable. And there was um, some serious organizing. We've got some activist um, council people uh, in Utica. One of them is our uh, council member, Celeste Friend, and Devlin Moody, who's uh, a council council member um, in inner city Utica. Um, really progressive voices um, helped organize this along with local groups. So I, my hat's off to them. I did not go to the demonstration because again, the COVID issue, um, I'm sort of staying home, but you know, I'm, I'm pretty much useless except for this sort of thing. And I'm not sure that I'm any less useless <laughs> in the context of this, of this podcast, but still I'm doing it anyway. This is what I can do. I'm screaming into the void. Anyway, what am I talking about today? Well, I am talking about this um, newly invigorated culture of resistance and the sort of backlash to that. And I want to, I want to just reference something that's that was in the news last week. Um, it's this op-ed that was dropped into the New York Times by Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, a um, veteran and a uh, graduate of elite schools and a, uh, I'm saying that for a purpose. <laughs> I'll get to that a little bit later, but um, a right-wing Republican senator who's kind of taken up the mantle of John McCain in a funny way. Um, just never saw a war he didn't like, never saw an, a problem that couldn't be solved by some kind of force. Um, but is probably a little bit, well, he's got a different, different policy set, I would guess, than McCain, but not that different. Um, just a hawk basically a hawk. And this op-ed was um, basically excoriated by um, a lot of people, on, even on the New York Times. Uh, the New York Times dropped in a kind of an apology, an editor's note that they dropped in um, a couple of days after they published it, um, saying after publication, this essay met strong criticism from many readers and many Times colleagues, prompting editors to review the piece and the editing process. Based on that review, we have concluded that the essay fell short of our standards and should not have been published. Uh, it's still on their website. I don't think they actually put it into the print edition of the paper. Uh, I did get it from their their website. It was uh, denounced as incendiary, and, and rightfully so. I, I think the thing that's particularly interesting about it, and I, I'm not, I'm not really going to um, comment that much on the criticism of it because you've probably heard it and 
other people have talked about this much more articulately than I ever could. Um, the thing that I wanted, the thing that I found particularly interesting about it is this resort to um, this longstanding trope in conservative republicanism, particularly um, about about protesters being representative of this narrow um, elite leftism, this kind of notion uh, that leftists are these academic, intellectual elitists walled off from society, you know, never worked an honest day in their life. Um, this is a long-standing trope, and it's very interesting to see him sort of pick this up here. It isn't it isn't just him. I mean, obviously, whoever's advising Trump is getting him to, you know, to take this line as well. But just the way Cotton sort of couches this, he even he starts the piece by saying, this week rioters have plunged many American cities into anarchy, recalling the widespread violence of the 1960s. Now, I presume when he's talking about the widespread violence of the 1960s, he's not talking about um, Bull Connors. He's not talking about Vietnam. He's not talking about... <laughs> Um, uh, Chicago, 68, when there was a police riot and cracked a bunch of people's heads. Um, I don't know, not sure what violence he's talking about, but I presume he's talking about like some of the riots, um, like the riot in Newark and, and Watts and, um, of course, you know, divorce from context, they are portrayed as some kind of blind mental mayhem, you know, with the, the subtext being that these are people who are less than, less than civilized. And so they're burning their own homes down. Why would they do that? That sort of thing. Um, but he goes on to say, bands of looters roved the streets, smashing and emptying hundreds of businesses. Some even drove exotic cars. The riots were carnivals for the thrill-seeking rich, as well as other criminal elements. This is what we're talking about here. Some even drove exotic cars. The thrill-seeking rich. And then he goes on to list, you know, pretty much all of the examples he can find of police being um, being attacked by um, these mobs, um, saying that the police bore the brunt of the violence. Really? Some elites have excused this orgy of violence in the spirit of radical chic calling it an understandable response to the wrongful death of George Floyd. Um, and then he, he and then he does kind of a little nod in after that. He says, those excuses are built on a revolting moral equivalence of rioters and looters to peaceful law-abiding protesters. Okay, now what he's talking about there are the vast, vast majority of the people at these demonstrations that are... By and large, peaceful. 
that are spirited but peaceful and not smashing windows and not setting fires, right? But those are the people who, um, in his own turn of phrase, are bearing the brunt of police violence right now. And we've all seen it. You don't need me to tell you about it. All you need to do is visit Twitter or visit YouTube sometime, and you will see it for yourself. And I know you have seen it. Um, Like I said, you don't need me as your tour guide. I'm sure plenty of people um, who are able to listen to this podcast have seen it firsthand. But again, this is the same thing. This is the same technique that has been used for decades. Back in the 60s, this is what Nixon used to sort of marginalize protesters as these kind of elite, um, radical chic kind of out of touch, you know, um, that there is this vast um, silent majority of nice white people in their suburban homes um, who didn't have very much to say about anything, but who quietly supported the president's war, the president's domestic policy, that sort of thing. Uh, that's what he was running against. Um, and and one, um, Reagan ran against that. Um, pretty much every Republican candidate ran against that. If anyone listening to this is old enough to remember the 1992 election when um, Clinton was running against George H.W. Bush. Towards the end of that campaign, when, when Bush was particularly beginning, well, I mean, I could go back four years earlier when he ran against Dukakis, and of course he was he was denouncing Dukakis as being sort of an out-of-touch Northeastern liberal, that sort of thing. And the Willie Horton ad, all that, all the Roger Ailes, um, Roger Ailes kind of um, uh, narrative. Four years later, when he was running against Clinton, um, they went right back to the 60s. They went right back to um, Clinton's, you know, draft-dodging ways. He, like, you know, went over to England to avoid being drafted, that sort of thing. They they really hit on that, and that he was. They made a big deal out of the fact that he was protesting against the Vietnam War on foreign soil in England, right? And to a certain extent, because Clinton was, um, relatively speaking, a a privileged person. He didn't grow up in privileged circumstances, but he, he ended up, you know, living a relatively privileged life. Um, you know, you, you could say, well, he was a member of the elite, you know, that's that sort of thing. Um, great. But if you're using him as an emblem of the elements in society that you're running against, and that was basically what the Republican party was all about in those days was running against the sixties, running against George McGovern, Running against um, the hippies and the and the black people, you know, um, black power, that sort of thing. Um, that's what you go with, right? And that's what they went with then. Um, they went with that when I'm trying to remember whether or not George 
W. Bush used that th- that approach. I'm I'm sure he did in some respect. They were a little bit sensitive about the draft dodger issue because um, George W. Bush had done the thing that um, people did all the time in the 1960s, which is join the National Guard to avoid the draft. Um, that was that was a way you could get out of it. I knew people who did that in New York State. Um, he joined the Air National Guard and was part of a unit that was um, populated by the sons of rich people. Um, and, you know, who can blame them? But again, like Cheney, you know, they were all four square in favor of the war. They just didn't want to fight it themselves. Uh, the only thing you can say about people like Clinton is that, you know, yes, he avoided the draft, but he was also against the war. <laughs> so at least at least he was consistent, right? Um, and then, of course, the McCain-Obama uh, election in 2008. I can remember McCain had a television commercial about that basically divided people up into they they called back to the 60s and the line was more or less while john mccain was being tortured by the north vietnamese and was you know fighting for his country you know there were all these hippies at home you know getting high and protesting the war and you know doing nothing right um which conveniently neglects the question of, you know, what was the divide between people who were overseas in Vietnam and back home? A lot of the people who were protesting either had been drafted or were about to be drafted. Every young person was liable to be sent overseas, pretty much. Um, There was a good chance that you'd be sent overseas. Um, So it wasn't like... (laughs) I mean, they were making it, they were sort of building their argument based on people's current understanding of who goes to war and who doesn't go to war. Um, making it sound like, yeah, there are a bunch of people who, you know, they didn't, they didn't do anything and there's a bunch of um, really patriotic people who signed up to go to Vietnam to, you know, kick commies' ass and save America from communism or whatever. And a bunch of people who stayed home and got high and didn't care. Um, And, of course, that's ludicrous. But, again, it was an argument being made in 2008 against Barack Obama (laughs) because that was the thing that that they always go to. And here they are going to it again. They're doing it again. Um, They never abandoned that. You know, it's this idea that the left is this elite, you know, ownership class, essentially, um, trying to lord it over everybody and and out of touch with the common person. And when you look at these, when you look at these protests, the thing that strikes you more than anything else is how diverse they are, how many ordinary people are involved in these. These aren't just... You know, these aren't just groups of like college professors out there. These are these are broadly representative movements. There's thousands and thousands of people on the street. It's quite impressive. 
Now, I, I'm not, I, I don't mean necessarily just to pick on Tom Cotton, right? I'm just using this as an example. Um, but his, his argument is essentially, you know, the, the president has the legal right to send in the troops, right, because of the Insurrection Act of 1807, um, and that it's not a threat to democracy to do that. And uh, that's a pretty amazing argument to be making. It's a pretty amazingly legalistic argument to be making, right? Yes, arguably, I mean, what is legal and what isn't legal? There is a law called the Insurrection Act that does provide for the president a infrequently used, it has been used, as Cotton points out, but an infrequently used ability to deploy units of the American military um, to suppress a an insurrection in, within the United States. Um, does that legal right exist? Well, it depends on, on its, you know, whether any legal challenges to that right that may arise through its use um, are successful or not. And that is as much a political question as it is a legal question. Um, Sure, you know, if it goes in front of a Trump-appointed judge, I'm guessing they're going to be okay with it. That's not the point. There are plenty of legal things that a president can do if you want to just concede for a moment that it's legal for the president to decide to send the troops in to, say, Chicago. Um, there's plenty of things that are legal for a president to do that are antithetical to a democracy and that are a political application of a presidential power. And I think it's it's pretty easy to make the argument that that's exactly what we're talking about because this is the same president that just a handful of weeks ago was tweeting, liberate Michigan, tweeting, liberate Virginia. The same president who is cheering on people armed with AR-15s occupying the capital of Michigan, you know, descending upon Lansing and bringing their guns into the Capitol building, which, again, they, they have the legal right to do, right? Because Michigan, in its infinite wisdom, um, has allowed people to sort of carry guns around. Apparently, that's not against the law. And and they were not harassed by the police. Trump was just fine with that. And I don't see Tom Cotton in this op-ed talking about that at all. That didn't make him worried. You know, he's worried about rioting and looting. Okay, well, there's looting and then there's looting. Last I saw, he voted for a massive bailout of the financial industry in the form of the the most recent COVID-19 package, whereby they allocated $500 billion for corporate America. $30 billion of that was just to go to the airline industry, which is, of course, they're constantly pumping money into. Another, I think, $20 million was allocated to, or forgive me, $20 billion was allocated to um, national security, 
which is probably Boeing. Uh, I'm not 100% sure. I think David Dayan suggested that it was going to be Boeing. But the other $450 billion or so dollars was was sent over to the Fed to capitalize a, um, and I've talked about this on previous episodes, capitalize basically a banking unit, a lending uh, facility that's um, providing <laughs> basically interest-free loans to the tune of $4 trillion worth of resources to the richest corporations in America. If that isn't looting, I don't know what is. Now, yes, there have been broken windows. There have been shops burned down. That's wrong. When <laughs> when Target gets looted or when um, Foot Locker gets looted um, in a city like uh, Philadelphia, uh, I you know I don't think it's a good idea. But quite honestly, I'm I'm not heartbroken over it because, <laughs> um, as others have pointed out much more eloquently than I can possibly do, these companies, these large corporations you know, profit off of their presence in these communities and they are not on the front lines with with these people um, when they're standing up against enduring oppression. And, you know, so if somebody's running into the footlocker and running out with a pair of sneakers, yeah, that's I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's a good thing, but I'm but it's not breaking my heart. Um we're being looted by our own legislature, our own president, um, in terms of a what David Dayan has described as a money cannon. You know that's that's hosing down the richest companies in in America with you know untold billions of dollars in interest-free loans with practically no strings attached with no real oversight, even the weak oversight that was inserted into the bill has been disabled. That's looting, as others have pointed out. Again, much more eloquently than I can possibly do. Um, So, I mean, what's my point? My point is, (laughs) this op-ed from Tom Cotton should disabuse anybody of the notion that uh, Tom Cotton would be a swell president. <laughs> I think we know what we could look forward to if Tom Cotton ever runs for president. I think we know that he would uh, soon have the Marines standing in occupation of our major cities. Uh, that's something to look forward to. Um, but it, it should also point out to people that this is not just a matter of Trump. This is not just a question of Trump being a bad president. This is not just a question of Trump being a bad person or being craven. This is an entire class of, of political leaders, you know, all of which support these policies, all of which support shutting down protests that, that they don't agree with while sort of enhancing and protecting and encouraging protests that they do agree with. It's a political application of force. 
And so there we go. Um, Tom Cotton. Uh, look for him in uh, 2024. Um, trust me, he has ambitions. <laughs> we shall see. We shall see. In any case, Democrats have a lot of problems in this area too. Um, aside from some leading lights on the left within the Democratic Party, um, leadership has been pretty much useless on a lot of this, um, a lot of these issues, um, sort of bleeding their support here and there. But nothing to speak of. Uh, where is the outrage, as they used to say? <laughs> in any case um, that's pretty much all I have to say about this I'd like to hear what you have to say again uh, I haven't heard from any listeners I haven't really gotten any feedback I haven't had anyone calling in and telling me that I'm full of shit I haven't had anyone tweeting back at me and, you know, sending me private messages, um, emailing me, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, no one. Uh, I'm happy to have that conversation. Um, I'm even happy to have someone come on live and talk to me about this stuff. Um, by, by live, I mean sort of a pre-record, but honest. Let's turn this into a conversation. If you're out there, if you're listening to this, I'd like to hear from you. Let me know. If you agree, if you disagree, let's hear it. Let's talk. Again, all I do is talk because uh, um, COVID-19 has me locked in my basement. And I'm bloody sick of it. But that's there are worse fates. In any case... Take care out there. Um, if you're out on the front lines, please be careful. Um, and look out for yourselves. And I look forward to talking to you again sometime very soon. Um, if you want any more information about the podcast, you can find it at anchor.fm slash strange sound. We're on Twitter at strange sound pod. We're also on Facebook. You can find the social media links at the Anchor site. Once again, anchor.fm slash strange sound. You can also find links to the podcast on um, our big green homepage, big-green.net. Just click on the podcast tab and you'll see the links. Stay safe out there. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>